Welcome to Tales from the Rec Room, where whenever there's a meeting, there's a parting show to follow. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I'm a garbage puppet that can no longer be used. And who is with me on the line today? Hello, Bree. I am Jason Edwards. And welcome to the new show, Jason. Uh, Jason, you're, you're no stranger to uh, Peak Show, but I guess the Tales from the Rec Room format is new to you. But your previous appearances on here have been pretty varied. You've done The Simpsons with us. You've done Mel Brooks. But now you're appearing for our second ever video game episode. And you were the first person when I put the call out on, um, on Blue Sky, because we're all on Blue Sky now, <laughs> uh, to volunteer for Majora's Mask. So can you tell me why you felt strongly about this, what I would consider a classic video game? Yeah, I'd say without getting too much into the uh, what I assume will be the, the, the main content of the episode, I will say that I, the answer is honestly a little bit boring. I was just the exact perfect age for this. Uh, this is, you know, mm-hmm. two years after uh, Ocarina of Time came out, the kind of groundbreaking 3D Zelda game of that era. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, as any good seven or eight year old, I was obsessed with that game. And then this game is just came out and is just similar but different in so many like interesting ways. Uh, that I think mm-hmm. I was just in the perfect place to like see a thing that was like I thought was was like impossible three years before they did it with Ocarina of Time and now it was happening again really really soon uh, mm-hmm. but in a very like uh, uh, to use a word I'll probably use a lot in this conversation a sort of twisted way uh, things were, <laughs> things were all of a sudden looking a little bit twisted and I was you know entering my my preteen era you know I was ten when this game came out so I was you know yeah. I was ready to to put away childish things and get into yeah we're we're this we're the same age and i think you both you and i like went through the same crucial very edgelordy era mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. oh yeah. yes invader zim was a huge uh, touch point in that era and that's kind of <laughs> what we're dealing with here not not really in any sort of uh uh content uh similarity but just in terms of darkness i guess yeah, and when I think about it, like the one thing I don't think I appreciated as a kid, but definitely appreciated as I um, actually when I got older and when I went back to my classic systems and my Super NES and stuff, is how much the Zelda franchise was waiting for the moment when um, a system that could play high capacity games like the N64 came out. Because um, as with um, the game that first got me into the Zelda franchise, which was uh, a link to the past, like Zelda had such a big, open, broad world, and it was just begging for a platform with the potential of N64. And so, yeah, um, similar to me, Ocarina of Time was like kind of, it, it set the standard for me. Majora's Mask was something that really kind of stayed with me and haunted me for a while. And this is a game that people feel very, very strongly about. So this is why I wanted to do it for Tales from the Rec Room. Also, let's face it, we've been doing a lot of movies. You know, this is our special Halloween episode. It would have been really easy for me to do a Halloween movie, but I'm going with Majora's... Oh, sorry. I'm guessing... I'm guessing you heard that. That was my brother attempting to call me. And you know what? I'm going to leave that in because my brother was such a crucial, uh, played such a crucial role in me uh, getting to know uh, the Zelda franchise and getting getting into Zelda. Um, but yeah, we're doing this as a Halloween episode because this game was regarded as so dark and disturbing and scary. And it's not a horror game, but man, it uses horror so well. All right. So um, on previous episodes, you've um, you've clarified that you don't want to be perceived on social media. You're you're kind of you've kind of got that like do not perceive me thing, which I greatly respect. But you have recently made the leap from podcaster to what I call a word podcaster or a writer. <laughs> so can you tell me about this uh, your new fantastic newsletter where and where people might find it? Uh, yes, thank you. The newsletter is called the Secret History of Modern Life. It is a Substack. So if you want to get to it, uh, the 
easiest way is to type in that whole long string of words dot substack dot com. That's the secret history of modern life. And despite the very self-important title, it is mostly a place where I write about pop music and and some like movies I saw like the week before or things I've yeah I'm like you know my little weird pop culture obsessions it's it, it's kind of is uh ostensibly a, an interrogation of the secret history of modern life through the you know kind of the least uh, uh direct means possible but in, in reality <laughs> it is a, pl- a place for me to collect my my various thoughts that have no other uh, outlet for them you know I uh I personally love it and I think like I, th- I think this is the nice thing about millennials as we're getting older and realizing how cringe we are is we it's like, oh, yeah, I just care about reading this other person's opinion on this movie. Oh, like what? I can find someone's like really, really strong opinions about Kesha. I'm mm-hmm. all for it. Um, yeah, it really is an era uh, where I think the the goal is to be as sort of like to sort of like draw as fine a point or like sharpen the edge of you, the blade of your particular obsessions mm-hmm. uh, as much as you can and just deploy those with the the greatest amount of of your own personal uh i don't know style as you mm-hmm. can uh, i guess i feel kind of weird because i'm kind of talking about myself here but i think it's a it's the ethos i think a lot of us yeah uh, cringe millennials are starting to embrace now because as we you know age out of being the the dead center mm-hmm. of mainstream of mainstream uh pop culture you know it, we, we got we gotta look elsewhere for the things that are gonna you know that we're gonna respond to and so yeah i think that's a it's a it's a good uh, I'm I'm into it as as an ethos. I like it. And nothing says cringe millennial like going back and relitigating a game that came out 22 years or 23 years ago. Um, so uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but let's go kind of where, when, like who we were when this game first came out in uh, in 2000. So when this came out, like did you did you rent it? Did you buy it? Did you jump right on this shit? Can you kind of remember how quickly you acted on this? Uh, yes, and this is kind of the main thing for me with this game is that it came out, I believe, November or December of the year 2000. Is that right? In the year 2000. Uh, yes, because it was um, <laughs> the same week as the PS2, which is a very yes. important aspect of it. That that that, by the way, is 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 wild to me. Yeah. Uh, but no, it came out that in in, in you know, it came out then. Uh, but the official Nintendo strategy guide was released about mm, four or five months earlier. Actually, it may have been the Prima or Prima, another company that also uh, wrote strategy guides at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And this is a, you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but it's a lost art for the the modern age because it used to be, you know, if you wanted to know all the secrets or maybe you weren't that good at playing video games, mm-hmm. you could buy basically a full color magazine that cost like 30 bucks. God, I love uh, those that, guides. <laughs> My brother bought through. them, but yeah. Yeah, and you know, it just walked you through everything in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bought that like six months before the game came out and that was like the even now i've I've played the game a couple times now Mm -hmm. and even now that interaction with that strategy guide for like the months preceding the game's actual release are still like my like my my core memory of interacting with the game because like i was saying it was i played ocarina of time like you know a year or two before and was like you know really obsessed with it and now i'm seeing these printed pages of these you know familiar because they were using so many characters and designs mm-hmm. and everything. These familiar characters in these strange, bizarre situations, and I'm going to be able to to live this bizarre story with this weird, like, like really frightening moon and this this countdown mechanic. And so I was obsessed with it for months and months before I ever played it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course I played it. You know, I I used the, the strategy guide to do everything that I did. I had no real like unmediated experience with the game. Still loved it. Still. 
Um, again, a thing I think is not super. Uh, uh, well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that back. I was gonna say that this is not a really uh, a thing that happens currently, but I do think the there's maybe some some correlations with the way people experience games now mm-hmm. through streamers, through not playing the game themselves. And you know, again, I, I'm kind of jumping outside the the, the realm of this, this actual question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point being, I was locked in on this game for months before I ever even got to play it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I very much jumped on it. Yeah, and to your point about the strategy guides, uh, for any possible younger listeners listening, that's because <laughs> what what replaced them ostensibly became uh, both the streamers and the walkthroughs, but even also like before streamers were a thing, the online walkthroughs, which I still will prefer an online walkthrough to a streamed walkthrough. I, I hate to mm. say this, like, because I... I'm sure that these people are all just perfectly nice people donning a persona. I can't take the personalities of like 80% of these streamers. Um, it's I, I get it. They're trying to make their make their money. And they're certainly probably making a lot more money than they make for these video game sites. As a lot of people have said, the video games uh, press industry absolutely blows. But I just can't mm-hmm. handle like 80% of the personalities. They're a little too... They're, they're not my thing. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think... It's funny because my brother, my brother's call interrupted this uh, recording, but I, I should have actually picked it up from my brother and said, hey, I got some questions for you because he would be able to fact check everything. He's got a really strong memory. I am certain that this came out, that we got this the week that it came out because my brother um, was a big video game purchaser. And I said this on our Chrono Trigger episode, but all the uh, hell that my siblings have given me because I was the more like extracurricular inclined of the siblings and like, oh, mom and dad spent so much money on your dance and your voice lessons and stuff. When I look back at what video games cost new in the 90s and the fact that there were a lot of games that my brother got brand new the week it came out and I'm just like, you know what? I am willing to bet that until the year that I joined a dance team, that my parents spent far more money on my video on my brother's video games than they ever did on my <laughs> dancing. Like that shit was expensive, but yeah. I can't imagine that we waited long for Majora's Mask. Uh, so that said, my first experience with Majora's Mask was watching my brother play it. That's the other reason we, why maybe I'm not into the video game streamers is because I I grew up with that. You know, anyone like no offense to older brothers out there, but anyone with an older brother knows that that's how you experience the video game first is you watch your older brother playing it. Um, as a result, I actually don't mind watching other people play video games. It's it's their, you know, commentary and personalities that I'm not super into. My brother doesn't comment on things. He just locks into things and goes, goes, goes. This was a particularly entertaining one to watch because the visuals in it are so good. And... Um, it's it's really captivating in that sense. The story is super intriguing, as complex as it was for me when I was, I mean, I was 11, so I could understand the slightly more complex games at the time. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really something to watch. And when I finally played it, uh, the tension that you feel when you're playing this game is so much more than any other Zelda game. So uh, yeah, I was, I was a day oneer. Uh, and I think... By the time GameCube came out, we were a PlayStation family. We didn't get any, I, I think until the Wii came out and then I had a Wii in university because it was like the party system. Um, but so this was like the last bastion of Nintendo games that came into my house. And so I actually played this through a couple times throughout my adolescence. And so my love for it was pretty unwavering. Now, also crucial, what were, the, like, if you recall, you know, you're 10 years old, what were your go-to gaming or like lazy boy snacks at the time? 
You know, I actually have had cause to consider this pretty recently mm-hmm. uh, because I was, you know, having some people over to watch the, the classic films, Halloween H2O, 20 Years Later, and Halloween <laughs> Resurrection, which both came out uh, you know, kind of before and after, but in the same era. And when I when I go to the grocery store and I'm looking for that snack that just captures that time in my life, I'm reaching for the Gogurt. <laughs> uh, Gogurt is still around. It's still great. Uh, it still tastes like the idea that there was anything healthy about yogurt that they they served us as kids is ridiculous. But also, who cares? It's a sweet little tube full of full of gogurt. Uh, and you know what? The serving size is actually technically three, so you can take down a couple gogurts in a row, and you're actually fine. Yeah, I uh, I'm just picturing you like with both hands on a controller, just like gogurt kind of like hanging out from between your teeth. Um, <laughs> I was not a big yogurt eater as a kid. Um, it's fair. Yeah, fair. I don't know why, because I actually think of myself as a kid who consumed more dairy than the average, because I was like a glass of milk with dinner until mid-high school kind of like long after oh, most same, people grow same. out of milk, um, which I think uh, is, you know, a bit of an irony considering who I am today. Um <laughs> But I wasn't super into yogurt, and one of the things I thought about yogurt was I thought it wasn't sweet enough for my very sweet tooth. And then when I finally did start eating yogurt in high school regularly, I'm like, why is this so sweet? All of it, (laughs) even the stuff not meant for kids, I find is so overly sweet. Uh, So I think at the time, we want to talk like when I was in the sixth grade-ish, I mentioned this before, I was all about the Twizzler pull and peels. All about it because it was also a, a snack that kept me busy, you know, a snack that I could prolong. That I could prolong a pull and peel for half a fucking hour while I played a while I played a video game. Yeah, any any, any candy or snack that also gives you an excuse to fidget for an extended <laughs> period of time that's a, that's a winner. Yeah, that's great. We're uh, especially considering how much I was just watching my brother play this game. Um, <laughs> we're currently we're about a week away from getting a dog. We just had the meet and greet with him uh, yesterday, and we're getting all our paperwork approved. And we're talking about like how many options there are for dogs now in terms of like um, you know like little game things that hide their snacks or you know like mazes for peanut butter and stuff like that. And I'm like. That is the equivalent of what a pull and peel was for me. It kept my brain yes. occupied while I was eating junk. Um, so this is an interesting one because this is uh, not a multiplayer game. And again, this was a game that was considered a little divisive, although I have some kind of notes on that. But was was your love of this game something you shared with your friends or were you a little on your own and liking it? I was a little bit on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't. Oh, <clears throat> excuse me for that. I'm going to start that answer over again. Of course. I was a little bit on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a friend at this time uh, who was also into video games, to not to the, to the degree I was. He was also more into wrestling video games by this point. He, uh, you know, we were we were growing in different along different paths. Mm-hmm. But, no, he, but he also loved Ocarina of Time, but he just, like, did not vibe with this game at all. I don't know if it was just, you know, we were a little bit older and maybe it was starting to be, you know, this is an era where video games maybe weren't the coolest thing for, like, a, a, a middle schooler or a high school to be playing. Mm-hmm. Sounds it sounds completely ridiculous to say now um but no it was very much like i didn't hear someone say they liked this game at all until i was in eighth grade you know about three years later i guess and Mm -hmm. people you know i heard someone say like that it was that he preferred it to ocarina of time which was like a blasphemy but you know in in my secret heart i was i was thrilled i thought oh my god is it it's not just me yeah there's other people out there like me yeah um I was definitely alone uh, for reasons related to gender more than anything. Um, you know, like, it, it, you are right that it is weird to imagine now that gamers 
gamers were considered nerds for a long mm -hmm. time. I know we kind of make fun of that now because gaming culture is absolutely mainstream culture now. But um, like my brother who, you know, had a video game collection that would make most most people drool, like he was considered a huge nerd for that. And he was considered a huge nerd for how much he loved video games. Um, and so the fact that there was this game that like I liked engaging with because I liked watching my brother play it, um, that, you know, I was already on the outs with with the gals. I didn't need another thing. Um, and it wasn't even a thing that I would flex as my, ooh, I'm not like other girls kind of thing because the boys in my school, they were into like dirt bikes and stuff. And they were into dirt bikes and hockey fights. Uh, this, this was an absolute like, virgin fucking nerd thing um so yeah i i was absolutely alone in liking it it wasn't until i got to university um in in a little bit of more of an environment and the era in which nerds were kind of cool people were coming out of the woodwork and confessing oh i actually do have this kind of nerdy interest that um and i've always considered zelda one of the most mainstream gaming franchises like i don't consider myself a gamer by any means i am the games that i like are very very mainstream but this was kind of the most like i don't want to say obscure zelda game because again i have some misgivings about that labeling of it mm -hmm. but this was one of the games that like if if you brought it up it's like oh that's more of a deep cut you know like so on that note can you tell me about your history with zelda games like what's the first zelda game you ever remember playing it really does all begin with ocarina of time like oh, i yeah? said classic millennial gamer here mm -hmm. uh you know got i played Super Mario 64, when I was five or six years old, it blew my mind. I was obsessed with that entire generation of consoles. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, when Ocarina of Time came out, that was the first one for me. And it was, you know, as, you, as it could be for a seven or eight-year-old, it was a kind of a mind-blowing experience. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Majora's Mask, similar thing, like I said, uh, same but but different in a very kind of uh, wild way for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, then, then let's see. So Wind Waker after that, I was one of the people who was, you know, very defensive of, of Wind Waker. Like, you know, there's that whole thing about the graphics were too, like, cartoonish and too childish. And I was like, no, it looks great. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, which I, which I, you know, history has redeemed me on that front. Yeah. <laughs> Although that's still one of, like, you want to talk actual divisive Zelda games. That is one of the Zelda games that I think is most divisive. Because mm -hmm. especially when you take away the more, like, literal cartoony uh, Zelda games, um that will still pop up on some top 10 worst Zelda games lists. I think it's the only Zelda game that I've seen pop up on top 10 worst and top top 10 best lists. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it really, I mean, yeah, I think it really, that really, that initial divisiveness really, really carries through. And I, I guess I'd have to wonder like how it actually plays now, because that's the game I have not gone back to at all since, since uh, it first came out. Uh, yeah. Like I said, uh, the, um, the ones that came out like on GameCube and stuff, and even Wii, like um, it, it was a while for me to start playing them. Not until I was making like adult money. Um, mm -hmm. But then, yeah, like things like uh, Four Swords and Minish Cap, I and Triforce Heroes, mm -hmm. I actually have no familiarity with at all, and I have no desire to even like figure it out for posterity because like they are generally by consensus considered among the weakest. Um, my first was actually A Link to the Past. Um, we were a Super yeah. Nintendo family, and I think again watching my brother play it but that was one of the first uh games i ever witnessed that had the more open world concept i'd only ever watched my brother and my mom and stuff because my mom was a bit of a nintendo gamer when we were little um i'd watch them play side scrollers and so this idea of like oh my god and he can jump in the water and he can cross this bridge and he can go up here and there's a forest and stuff like peeking in and out of worlds that like i don't know i might have been five or so and i was just 
completely fascinated by it. So when the 64 came out and, and Ocarina of Time, like just seeing how much bigger you could make the game, that you could play different songs on the ocarina and being a musician who could read staff music and stuff, like I was like super obsessed with just the ocarina element. So yeah, this was a must play for me. And then I left the Zelda games for quite a while. Like I said, we were not a GameCube family and it wasn't until I started making adult money that I was like, okay, let's try out like Wind Waker, Twilight Princess uh, and stuff. So yeah, it, it was... I think this one I feel so strongly about because I consider this like my last Zelda game that I was obsessed with. Everything else I've played because it's like, okay, everyone else is playing this. Let me see what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. And I, I Link to the Past is a, is a great one to mention because that is really is a great game that actually holds up more than you might think. Mm-hmm. I, I played that to make a to long story very short. I played that a lot during the uh, early months of like let's say March and April of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a very you know a very interesting headspace I was in at that time, I guess. Yes. Uh, maybe that's got something to do with my reaction to it. Anyway, that game still still hits. It's still hard. I still got stuck on a, a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it still actually does really really work as an open world Zelda game. Yes. So let's let's talk about contextualizing the era because this is to mm-hmm. me like it's marked as one of the last big releases on 64 before GameCube came out because it came out like less than a year like it was by no means the last one there are things like starcraft 64 mario party 3 uh, star wars battle for naboo but i do think it's safe to say that this was among the last batch of significant releases i think like even all of of all of those big ones i don't think there was a single one that my family bought uh after like mario party 3 was a rental game you can no one in this world needs to own a mario party game i mean i know game rentals really aren't a thing anymore right with the way people buy games um but Mario Party, you could get away with going to your Blockbuster, your local mom and pop, and just buying because it was something that you played with your friends. And I was like, oh, so-and-so's over for the weekend. Let's play Mario Party. I don't know anyone who sits solo and plays Mario Party. Uh, you know one person. Because <laughs> you're speaking to him right now. I No, because you're absolutely right. That is the appropriate way to deal with Mario Party. But I uh, was kind of a lonely little child in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and so I owned Mario Party 2 and would just play it against the computer endlessly yeah uh, i love i love those little mini games man i don't know what to say to be fair i once like had for almost a full year scars or like calluses on my palms from all the mario party games where you had to like um rotate the joystick as quickly as oh possible those, I, those are so evil i was old enough to know that i'm like i can make a joke about me looking like jesus right now but i'm not gonna <laughs> um but uh yeah like that does make me think of that um that adage that i first heard probably a bit later when i was in uh university but the whole um, uh, Nintendo's for playing with your friends Xbox is for playing with your online friends PS3 is for people who have no friends Um, which (laughs) makes me laugh because on one hand I'm like yeah you know good kind of true stereotype but then I'm also like jokes on you I like Nintendo and had no friends (laughs) Um, so so there's no dancing around this the game is considered a cult classic but that said I, I went down a rabbit hole because the appreciation has grown over time, I think people inadvertently rewrite history and think of it as this huge underperformer. And yes, it was at the time the lowest selling Zelda game, but Zelda is one of the best selling franchises of all time. Like there has to be a last place in the cutest dog competition, you know, because um, mm-hmm. it critically and commercially, this did fine. It sold out in its first week. It sold 1.2 million copies in 2000, in the year 2000. And it was the fourth best-selling game of 2000, second best for Nintendo. Now, I did find some interesting stats. Uh, Top four that year were Pokemon Stadium, 
Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, uh, the original Tony Hawk Pro Skater, which talk about sequels coming out within a year. Um, (laughs) And then this, number five was Gran Turismo 2. Tony Hawk numbers also are referring to the PlayStation release because that was back in the days when if you really wanted a release to do well, you could release it on both. Now people don't really do that anymore. Um, So some notes on systems, though, because in 2000, the top 10 selling Nintendo 64 games sold a combined 8.48 million copies. For PlayStation, um, PS2 did come out in 2000, but like, like like this game tail end of 2000 so playstation games the top 10 sold a combined 9.91 million so the top 10 playstation games outperformed nintendo by about 17 percent and it I, I don't have great data on 1999 because the site where I got the 2000 info didn't have it for 1999 and other sites had kind of different formats. It included Japan only releases. So I don't have a direct, direct comparison, but it is fair to say, looking at the general trends that Nintendo had been experiencing a couple years of PlayStation games outperforming them. And then 2000 compared to 99 was just far fewer console games sold in general, which I'm not entirely sure why. I, If I really felt like looking, uh, looking at it, uh, I, I'm sure I could figure out why. But there were more uh, games in the top 10 than previous years with T and M rating. So things like Tony Hawk, Perfect Dark, WWF No Mercy. I don't know. Were you a big uh, wrestling game player kid? Uh, no, as I said, my, my kind of main you might say only friend at the time was getting really into wrestling uh, which i was never really into though i did try to you know i, I gave it a a real half-assed you know 10 year old's effort uh, to get into it uh, but so i played i'm looking at no mercy right now in particular i don't I, I actually i do think i played this one but it would have been like i was over at my friend's house and you know trying desperately to understand what the controls were uh, and never never quite succeeding but i think I, I did play my fair share of this era of, of wrestling games i sometimes feel like the only millennial who's not super into wrestling and i'm not sure if it's because i grew up without um without a lot of like extended cable packages like we had cable but not the kind of cable that got us uh wwf uh as it was called at the time um and also like wrestling games i didn't do particularly well with for the same reason i didn't do well with fighting games i was a button masher i could not Mm -hmm. like figure out a combo move to save my life which was also why i liked adventure games the the instructions were so straightforward um but yeah early playstation reviews do focus you look back on like fishing reviews from the late 90s on playstation games being more mature and edgy than nintendo games and when you roll out pokemon um because of course it's pokemon it's going to be the top seller i think those top games of 2000s and you see inklings of this in 1999 there's an inclination toward more mature games and majora's mask even though it is still rated e it is and arguably at the or it was the most mature zelda game yet um even simple visuals like the angry face of the mask salesman or the imagery of link transforming <laughs> into the deku like the team was going farther than they'd gone before in terms of making things seem and feel very scary and so i think that things were poised for majora's mask to do really well it just there were a few factors that made it forgettable but like the rewritten history of Majora's Mask that was some sort of critical failure, its meta score was 95 out of 100. It was praised almost equally as Ocarina of Time. Like Game Informer called the three-day time cycle one of the most inventive premises in all of gaming and called it the finest adventure Nintendo 64 had to offer. So like in terms of criticism, it wasn't like panned. There wasn't even really divisiveness. GameSpot said that the timeline was restrictive, but it still gave the game an 8.3 out of 10 and it was runner up on top games of the year. So I think it's safe to say that people have maybe blown out of proportion the reaction to Majora's Mask. It's the not like other girls of Zelda games. <laughs> like 
yeah, it just it wasn't as universally well received as Ocarina of Time, but Ocarina of Time had has still been it's still considered one of the greatest games of all time. If you look up like what the top Zelda games of all time are, I do like that there's no one perfect consensus, but this Ocarina of Time is always top three, I think. Yeah, and I think I do think for people again, I hate to keep coming back to this, but for people in our age range, I think Ocarina of Time is is hard to get away from, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's you know I think that's again part of what you're talking about here. It's that's reason, the part of the reason why it is. Why, why Majora's Mask is looked at as like this, you know, this this black lesser sheep, than yeah. black sheep. Yeah, like, well, it wasn't, you know, kind of wasn't that popular. It was extremely popular. It just wasn't quite as popular as the immediate preceding game, which was, you know, one of the most popular games ever made. Mm-hmm. So it's always going to feel a little bit overlooked, even though, yeah, in comparison to almost any other video game ever made, it is insanely popular. Yeah. Like, I think the the comparison to Ocarina of Time was part of what gave it that reputation. I think also, like I said, the timing of PlayStation 2 launching that week uh, probably mm. didn't help because if people bought it a lot, maybe people, like, it's not as easy to find a stat on how many people didn't play through the entire thing, how many people got frustrated with it and put it away. Like, that is probably a bigger thing. Um, but, like... Um, and a lot of people did complain about how difficult it was. I'm trying to find the quote from uh, Bob Mackey, host of Retronauts, uh, as well as um, uh, as well as uh, Talking Simpsons. But like he talked about like the hostility of the game and the inaccessibility of the game, which and he this was a positive retelling of it, but it is considered very hostile. Now that said, you know we talk about main character syndrome. I think. Um, if you're 10 when this game comes out and so you quit it because it's like, oh my God, this is way too hard or this is way too scary. Um, like that doesn't mean necessarily that that was the experience of the people who were 18 when this game came out or mm-hmm. 20 or like game reviewers and stuff. And so like, I, I think what truly happened and why it's remembered as this thing no one liked back in the day is because the gamers who are now in their 30s, they might've found it too complicated back in the day. They took a while to come around to it. So like, yeah, like it was... We're, we have to remember that we're not the only people who experienced this game, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, that said, it was lauded for things that Zelda hadn't done before, so that's why I think maybe it gets this Black Sheep kind of label, like, not just in terms of game format changing, like, it was the three-day timeline, there's no impetus to save Princess Zelda, there's no Ganondorf, but again, the horror imagery, the death, the apocalypse symbolism, like, I, I reject this notion that Zelda hadn't been dark before. I think Zelda actually had been building toward this in terms of darkness, but this was on another level. This inspired like almost a cultish kind of like <laughs> uh, conspiracy theory interpretation of this game. Yeah, there is the darkness is yeah. There, there's darkness present throughout all the Zelda games. Ocarina of Time, obviously, very bleak and uh, <laughs> frightening and, and eerie in, in so many uh, places, but. Uh, Majora's Mask really does force you to confront the death of like human or human type uh, characters. Like everyone in this town and everyone you meet in the game is at the end of these this three day cycle going to die. Like mm-hmm. just like not get turned into stone or like you know whatever they're gonna die, and that's really that just changes like the whole tenor of the game and your experience with it and the death imagery of the moon crashing is one Mm -hmm. of the scariest things like i actually um spoiler alert for later question but i didn't get to that point as a kid but as a slightly as maybe a teenager i watched videos of it and stuff and it was legitimately frightening for me i'm like this is like something like if i saw this in a movie i'd be covering my eyes 
Yeah, it really, yeah, and I, even seeing it, again, back to my, my strategy guide, seeing the printed image of, like, what they, like, were willing to show you of, of the end, uh, you know, the fail state of the game, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it definitely inspired me to not ever uh, let that happen. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a powerful motivating factor if that, you know, to not see that, that horrifying animation at the end of the cycle. Yeah, nothing, nothing summarizes the kind of threatening nature of the game, quite like the view of the moon grimacing down at you. Uh, I love when people Photoshop that into everyday stuff, but I would, I would <laughs> now describe that uh that facial expression as a proto yikes emoji because it basically <laughs> is the yikes emoji now. <laughs> um, it really is like the moon's like uh-oh i'm crashing into you guys Ugh, yeah awkward <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it's i feel like during like I was trying to think, because uh, I was going to make this a lightning round question, and I was trying to think, I've seen so many instances in which not only the imagery of the moon, but also, you know, dawn of the final day, 24 hours remain, mm -hmm. has been used as a meme in reaction to real life things, but I can't remember any specific examples now. But I'm sure, I'm sure, like you said, during that crucial period of, say, March to May 2020, I'm sure that they made their rounds. Oh, yes. And I believe I've seen that uh, dawn of the final day meme on days of this is embarrassing, like big elections in the U.S., like oh, yeah. Democratic, like the Democratic primary, like Super Tuesday 2020, <laughs> which is an embarrassingly important day in my like mental evolution as, as a person, as a political being. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm almost certain I woke up and saw those those memes being posted on that day. So it definitely, yeah, definitely pops up a lot. How incredibly prophetic in retrospect. Um, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So like our uh, previous video game episode on Corona Trigger, and let me just say, this has, this has come up in so many different contexts that I think listeners of Tales of the Rec Room are just going to need to know this as what I call the Shelley Duvall problem, which is to say that, yes, people were tortured and had a terrible time in the making of this, and it wasn't right, and it's not right, but I can't go back and change history and so Shelley Duvall still had to suffer a great deal to make The Shining it wasn't right but The Shining is still amazing so <laughs> uh, yeah like this game's greatness was achieved the old fashioned way uh, much like in Chrono Trigger by the makers of the game becoming ill from the demands placed upon them. <laughs> um, yeah I, I have to imagine that almost the entire video game industry is like that and we are kind of like uh, it, we're recording this, uh, the WGA strike has come to an end, but the SAG strike is ongoing. And there are talks of an upcoming um, strike within um, the gaming world. I have to say, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't know what the names of the unions that um, that are involved uh, or that make up the majority of employees in the gaming world. But like the games press and the gaming, uh, like the gaming development world are such incredibly difficult, exploitative industries still. And it, you know, like I say, this turned out to be an amazing game, but it probably is a problem the way we glamorize um, and kind of memify how like, oh, yeah, um, uh, A.G. Aonuma had nightmares from the um, from the timelines that were placed upon him for to create this game. That is also just such a relatable thing. And I didn't know that about the, the game's creation, mm -hmm. uh, that, the, that there was any inspiration coming from like one of the creators having stress dreams about the thing he was working on. That's such a... I don't know that that's just so relatable the idea of having this like awful timeline for and not to say I've, I've worked in any conditions like you know mm -hmm. the awful stress they would have been under to make this game but just you know when you have a thing upcoming that you have to deal with that you don't feel like you are going to be able to in any sense and you're just like it's just like taking up so much space in your brain to yep. use that in actually the game itself yeah is you know pretty you know as awful as the conditions were, um, pr pretty inspired, you know, problem solving in a way. Yeah, um, and Sh Shigeru Miyamoto, uh, because it was because of the insane success of Ocarina of Time that, like, he wanted to create a sequel within a year. So that, like, 
Um, and that timeline actually inspired so many other elements of it. And I will say, and this might, I want to try to say this in the most politically correct way possible, but the overworking culture of the gaming industry, we also have to remember that the over, like, this is just considered somewhat boilerplate and standard in Japanese corporate culture. Like, mm-hmm. it is very, very normal to, not very, very normal, but like, say someone like sleeping under their desk in Japan, and we think of that as like, oh my god, that's horrible, and people in Japan are just like, no, you gotta get shit done. Like, that's also why the work from home era, like, was very different in Japan uh, versus versus here. Uh, so that's, you know, like, I, wa- I don't want to come across as like an ignorant American who, or North American who is making, like, who's engaging in stereotypes about Japanese corporate culture but like most people will say like yeah that is not all that surprising in japanese corporate culture um so but like the the restrictive timeline in which they made this that's why so many of the characters you see and you mentioned this with your player's guide they're pre-existing character designs rather than completely new characters but like when i first played the game so soon after ocarina of time it was a little bit uncanny valley for me because you're seeing these familiar faces but it kind of works it kind of works and it was very easy for me to accept as a child. Yeah, and it helps that that familiarity is built into the game setup. Mm-hmm. The, and again, this is part of what I think resonated for me so strongly as a kid because this game actually, unusually for a Zelda game, begins as a you know it's not it's not exactly spelled out like super explicitly with like a, a huge attention to detail in the in the continuity. But mm-hmm. this is the same link from the end of Ocarina of Time, and he's. Yeah. He's, he's going through it. He's really having a tough time, and he's trying to find... It's so sad. He's looking for the annoying fairy that follows you around through Ocarina of Time, this thing that I'm sure for many <laughs> of us kids was you know, kind of an annoying presence in the game. But the idea that Link is so alone and there's like no one else he can like relate to at this point because of mm-hmm. what he's been through, he's looking for um uh tattle is that am i confusing that uh, navi sorry navi is the fairy from Ocarina yes and uh, tattle and tail are these ones yeah oh wow i'm getting uh, that's embarrassing uh but yeah so, <laughs> and so the fact that you're entering into this kind of like alternate not quite mirror world but it sort of is like you're moving into another iteration of your previous world mm-hmm. and seeing these these familiar faces in these new contexts i think really does like yeah it, it kind of that especially if you have like a strong connection to Ocarina of Time, mm-hmm. seeing those those images again, those those models and those designs again in new context is is on, on the, just a base level unsettling. And it's going to put you kind of ill at ease or, but also it's strangely familiar. It's this really weird combination of like warmth and uncanniness. <laughs> yeah. And even like, I mean, I know that most Zelda games open with what I would call like a cold open. Uh, but mm-hmm. the fact that you kind of start in the middle of an adventure, like you're running through the forest, I think is really cool. It also makes me think, and yes, I did just see this for the first time on Friday, but um, the new Saw X, because y'all know I have very strong feelings about the Saw movies, um, which is like, it takes place between Saw and Saw 2. The, and and there's something about like hopping in in the middle of the action that makes you as um, as a viewer or a player kind of like, oh, I'm on my toes. It, it, mm-hmm. it very much like it doesn't ease you in at all. It kind of drops you in. Um, so the other thing, like there are only four dungeons in this as opposed to like Ocarina of Time is an arduous long Mm -hmm. game with nine dungeons i think it is there are four dungeons in this but it again it's because like most of the game's ram is taken up by like the the time travel elements having to go back and do everything over and over and also like that people need to appreciate the work that goes into all these npcs 
have three days worth of behaviors that you have to program into them. That is so much. Yeah, it really is. It, it seems so. I mean, if you see this sort of like technology in a game now, mm-hmm. like where there's like like routines and schedules for NPCs, it's still it, it's obviously it's a lot more common now. But it's still like notable when you have NPCs and a, a game world in general that's that's created with this much fine detail that's like mm-hmm. important and crucial to the game and how it works for all that detail to kind of like interlock. Mm-hmm. Um, correctly it's kind of you know it's fitting that the, the the central location of the game is clock town because the entire game kind of functions in my rudimentary understanding of what of what uh, clocks and machines are in general it's like a clock you know yeah there's a, a hundred little tiny gears that all have to run together in order for everything to work the way it's supposed to and it's really really impressive mm-hmm. you know Termina Field is, um, which like great name, you know, like they they do lay the symbolism on very thick, but um, Termina Field is a great example of something that is a fairly finite world, but even just like the fact that it is like essentially a merry-go-round of horrors, um, (laughs) it's it's really cool. It shows how much you can create within a physically limited world. Um, There's no adult link uh, that I think this was the first one that didn't have like kind of a future and present timeline, but instead you are dealing with different forms of link. Uh, There are no two timelines, present or future, but I think like the first three-day period where you're Deku Link and then you go back in time for the first time versus the full-fledged adventure aspect are probably the closest you can come to the game feeling like it has two parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and under my free discussions and rabbit holes, which I, I love when other people can take me down their rabbit holes, but like, uh, again, this is the last time I'm going to beat this drum, but I want to talk a bit more about the status as a cult classic because here's the reason why I think everyone maybe beats the drum uh, about this being a misunderstood or underrated legend a bit too hard. It was released around the time that internet access became more ubiquitous. Like the internet had obviously been a thing for a couple of decades, but this was when we had like the World Wide Web, the indexed web. Uh, so this found a quote unquote second life through message boards, uh, IRCs, the gamer forums. The, the Second Life was like really a couple months after its death. You know, that's why it only took three years for this to be re-released on GameCube. And then it was around 0607 that you start to see the conspiracy theories, uh, which is really like something I call like people discovering literary devices for the first time. Like sometimes people are like, oh my God, Termina Field, like that's symbolic for death. I'm like, yes, that's what they meant to do. It's kind of like, you know, I love Taylor Swift, but people processing Taylor Swift lyrics for the first time are like, she hides messages in her songs. I'm like, yeah, that's called symbolism. Every <laughs> author does it. Wait till you hear about Jonathan Swift. Um, so, like, yeah, the five, uh, you see, hear things like the five sections of Termina represent the five stages of grief, or Link is dead the whole time. Um, well, I, I think it's a bit silly. It is nice to see how the game used literary and storytelling and visual devices more creatively than its predecessor to inspire those discussions, and not to dismiss the intricacies of the story itself, which are quite complex, but previous Zelda games had been all story. This was a lot of like art direction and subtext, which I think, you know, made it rife for that internet, maybe over-interpretation. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it definitely is, like, again, going back to the, the limitations they had on them, which, again, often include just awful working conditions, but limitations of, like, you're going to reuse these assets and these design elements from the last game because there's just, just no other option with the time we have. Mm-hmm. That really does, like, force you to think about, or at least I assume forces the creators to think about, really, really think about how things are going to be placed. And not to say that Ocarina of Time was in any way a lazy game or did not have a, you know, a great effect on the player through its use of art, but... They definitely there's a lot you're right there's a lot of thought into how the 
um, uh, production design is not the right word because it's a video game, but mm. you know how the world around you like impacts your just experience of moving through it. Uh, yeah, and, and things just like the art direction. Yeah, I think um, the way I would describe Ocarina of Time and what made it so successful is for those of us who, you know, enjoyed A Link to the Past and who enjoyed the original Nintendo games, we think like, I wonder what Hyrule looks like in 3D. Like it was really the true like 3D open world of it. Um, that Hyrule was like, I don't want to say it gave us what we expected, but it did give us what we were asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, the Like probably the meanest thing you can say about Majora's Mask is what makes it so unique, which is no one asked for this. Um, so like there have been a lot of um, creepypastas spawned from this game uh, the most famous being Ben Drown now I'm gonna lay it out here I've never been into creepypastas like I I think maybe judging from the fact that I was a kid who like I said I was eight when I first watched The Shining I watched the first two screen movies the year they came out Um, so certain things don't didn't bother me or unsettle me very easily like to, do you remember Salad Fingers, Jason? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So I was a kid who already thought that Salad Fingers was try hard edgelord shit. Like that's, <laughs> and this is yeah. not to say that I was like going out seeking out really dark stuff, but I just, creepypastas didn't get to me. Uh, so, but the most famous being Ben Drowned. Have you seen or read Ben Drowned or known the legend behind it? Yes. If I remember correctly, Ben Drowned was coming out around the time I was in college. And yeah. so I, I was a little bit old for creepypastas, but I do think I have an affinity for them because I was obsessed with the previous iteration of creepypastas, which was uh, the Snopes.com urban legends section, <laughs> yes. um, which I would read through you know, as like a little like nine or 10 year old and just freak myself out being like, oh, the babysitter, the killer's upstairs. Ah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I was really, you know, I, I would still, I still do occasionally find creepypastas now that I like kind of like, I mean, they're all, they're really for people who have like a, a younger reading level to, to be honest, but uh, and Ben Drowned, I was kind of compelled by initially because it was like I had not seen a creepypasta in that format before where it was, yeah, based on the, the footage from the emulator and he'd done all this, you know, cool stuff in the emulator to make the game look different and, and everything. But mm-hmm. I, I did kind of uh, fall off eventually just because I think, again, I was a little bit too old for it to really like you know, like freak my bean in the way it did for <laughs> someone who you know, maybe even just like five or six years younger, you know, has a little bit less experience with that stuff. You know, I have never heard the term freak my bean before, but it sounds like something a lady would say in a sexual context. Hey, buddy, freak my bean. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I, 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 I wonder if that's like a, a more a more unique phrase than I'm aware of. I don't I don't I, I thought it was a pretty common phrase, I guess. Maybe maybe up here in communist Canada, we don't do it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, like, and yeah, the creator of Ben Drown has expressed some regrets in making it. Like he received death threats because he dared to create a parody of it. And <laughs> like he questioned whether or not, like there was a girl in Polk County, which I believe is Idaho. Um, or no, it's Iowa, Iowa. I should know this because Polk County is the center of a water quality project that I write about a lot for work. Um, <laughs> referencing, uh, she referenced it, I guess, in some like blog post prior to her suicide. And so he'd kind of expressed some regrets in making it like, and wondered like if he would have done things differently. And you look at, he referenced also that like Slender Man had apparently inspired a stabbing mm-hmm. and stuff, mm-hmm. which that, I'm not going to lie. I've When I say like, I feel like I was too old for that. It was, I was also too old for that to be like the impressionable thing. And like, I, what I find striking is that there was never a real mainstream, like satanic panic around creepypastas because I don't think adults at the time knew how to explain what a creepypasta was. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. so, but like that did, I think that became the proto kids are eating Tide Pods. 
uh, kind of panic, um, which again, largely comes from older people not understanding what a fucking joke is online. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right the, to point out this was peak popularity for emulators. Like again, they weren't just a thing for huge geeks anymore. And that helped create all these experiences. What I actually think like, the animation format for Ben Drowned reminded me of, and it would become like this is so much nicer than what uh, than what the creepypastas were was um, YouTube poops. I miss the days of YouTube poops so badly. <laughs> I used to date a guy who would just get really, really stoned and make YouTube poops. And I'm like, this is wholesome in a way. <laughs> that, that That's really a, that's not a bad life to create for oneself. No. Whereas like the opposite, like I always, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Bye Bye Man, but I always look at that as like, I call it if someone like did like homemade inhalants and then made a creepypasta into a movie. That's what the Bye Bye Man is. Um, the, the, so, but, so bring it back to not away from the Bye Bye Man and toward <laughs> Majora's Mask, believe it or not. Uh, so there has been criticism of this game for too many side quests. I really dislike that criticism. I think it's one of those games where the side quests really add to the game. And I think for a long time in these kind of single like adventure slash RPG games, um, they they struggle to find ways that the side quests can play into or complement the mainstream gameplay. Um, I love Chrono Trigger, as I said on this podcast, like because I have a whole episode about this, but Chrono Trigger side quests, like they kind of take away from it or it just becomes like a little like, I would consider them more Easter eggs than anything. Mm-hmm. Ocarina of Time goes in this direction a little bit. Like I said, there are a lot of things in Ocarina of Time that build toward Majora's Mask. Um, But I'd say the side quests in Majora's Mask directly enhance it because not only are they a little like twisted and strange, like with these uncanny valley supporting characters, they also frankly add to the stress of your three-day timeline. And you have this like really difficult decision-making process of like, oh, do I go and do this and waste some time because it might actually help me in the game? You don't know what's going to help you in the game or not. Yeah, and it really is, if you don't like the side quests of Majora's Mask, you just don't like the game. Yeah. Which is fair, wrong, but fair. Uh, <laughs> because they are they are much more crucial to the game than they are in Ocarina of Time. As, as you're saying, like Ocarina of Time has the one, I, this is not even like the, the most like prominent side quest in the game, but I think about the big sword you could get in Ocarina of Time if you went mm-hmm. through this very long chain of, of trading off with other characters and this whole like time limit thing, which actually now I think about the time limit especially of the, the, the sword quest does kind of feel like it is, yeah, building towards, well, what if there was a game that was just weird stuff like this and mm-hmm. you were, again, like constrained by this time limit? Yeah, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... Like, there are a lot of thematics you can talk about. There's thematics of death, um, thematics of apocalypse. Um, I I think my favorite kind of theme in this game, there's been a lot of proverbial ink uh, spilled about the way this game portrays children and the loneliness of children. And I think it's it's uh, very important, uh, your note about how this kind of takes place directly after the events of Ocarina of Time. Um, and in Ocarina of Time, like, there's very conspicuously no adults around. The Kokiri children kind of live as children forever. And it's not seen as weird or strange. And this is the like the one thematic string through Zelda games has always been that it's a Bildungsroman. It's a hero's journey. And this one tackles how lonely and isolating it is to be on a hero's journey. Mm-hmm. 
Like I also, I just love an excuse to use the word buildings Roman. Uh, Ted and I <laughs> spoke about the trope of like the wordless protagonist in video games as well. And this is a game that actually really leans on the fourth wall because the idea of trapping Link in a mask creates this tangible symbol of his separation from everything around him and his isolation from everything around him. Like he lives an incredibly isolating existence as a wordless hero. And this is the first game to kind of address it, I think. And it's interesting, too, because the masks are, are so often, you know, not only do they transform him and like do, you know, allow him to do weird different things, but he uses them to communicate with people because, you mm-hmm. know, Link can't just like go up and say, hey, you know, I heard your your son's missing. What's up with that? Have you, or have you, like, you heard about this guy or this thing? He's got to put on a mask and walk up to someone and just approach them. And I don't know if you want to imagine there's like some conversation happening there from Link that we're not hearing, but it really mm-hmm. is like. The, the mask is this interesting, like yeah, like it is a separation between, you know, whoever is wearing it and the person they're 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 speaking to. But in this game, it's also Link's only way of communicating with some people. Mm-hmm. There's also a thing about like masks and empathy and masks and pathos because most of the masks like have like a legend of someone who died uh, mm-hmm. a, a very painful death, and that's how he gets them. And when he puts on a mask, um, even I'd say the minor masks, like um, I think of the one that allows him to do the little dance with the mm-hmm. with the twins and stuff, yeah. like. It's his way of empathizing with other people. I think like as much as probably the the Deku mask is the most um, iconic, the um, the Zora mask and the um, and the Goron masks, they're what kind of allow him like a ticket into someone else's culture as well, which is kind of like mm-hmm. a cool thing. It's like him exploring these other populations and stuff, and, like Link as a true chameleon. And like he is a friend to all, but he is also a very isolated young man. So... I like this. I also another note on the isolation. Uh, Darmani's line, could it be? Can you see me? Like when you see his ghost through the lens of truth. When you think about it, that'll like kind of fuck you up because it's like, okay, if I sit and think about this for a while, this is going to make me sad. If I'm a kid playing this at like 11 years old, let's see, I'm not sure at 11 if I believe in ghosts or not, but this is going to make me question for the first time, oh, wow, being a ghost is a lonely thing because no one can see you. Yeah. 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 I, I love Darmani. I love like I love any like follow me kind of thing. Um, also, the music in this the music is a bit underrated. Um, they use a lot of dissonance, like uh, especially like the use of bells in this uh, to create more ghostly and surreal scenes that are highly effective. This was uh, they didn't bring anyone new for this. It was the work of longtime composers uh, Koji Kondu and uh, Taro Minigeshi. You have a few of the like standard ones, but like. It was there were a lot of new like world world things because we're not going to Hyrule. We're this isn't this isn't your mom's Hyrule. Like it's we we don't get the Hyrule theme because we're not in Hyrule. We're not in in the standard field. We're not in the Kokiri Forest. Like um, uh, what, my favorite thing about the music that I just want to note real quick is aside from the uh, I believe it's the you know the, one of the music box songs that the mask salesman plays that that's been. I've been revisiting this game the last week, couple weeks, and that song has been just, just going through my head all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love the the different because there's you know there's the the, the clock town theme, uh, which is maybe the closest thing to I guess that's kind of like the most like high rule theme ish like music you get in the game. Mm-hmm. And as the as the days go on and you get to the second day and then really especially in like the end oh, of the third day, yeah. these new tones start coming in underneath that they don't really change the melody exactly, but they like increase the sense of like of like you know the 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 inevitability of what's happening or like you know the the very like impending doom that you're like facing down it really like just like changes your the, the feeling of walking around the town so drastically 
Yeah, like, I mean, world music is supposed to disappear into it. And, like, the one thing about um, Zelda, uh, as well as I'd say, like, Final Fantasy games and Chrono Trigger, like, is the world music, even though it does disappear, like, it, it's become iconic because they're really good compositions. That's one that, like, just, again, it's very threatening. And it's like, I don't want to hear the music anymore. <laughs> um, so, like, the music, uh, again, I hate this phrase because this is from people who, like, just learned, like, Criticism 101. But, like, the music kind of becomes a character in this sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think also where it deviated a lot from the purported norms of the Zelda franchise, I have to say, I think like Ocarina of Time, as I've said, was already taking it in that direction. Zelda has always flirted with themes of whether it was direct apocalypse or scarcity and ruin and the idea of like preventing disaster. I think Majora's Mask paved the way though for much more darkness and execution on that theme in the visuals, in the music. And the best Zelda games after this were the much darker ones. Like I said, Wind Waker is much darker than people give it credit for because those those visuals are very divisive and yes, they're more anime-like. Yeah, but you know, Wind Waker is there's a lot of there's a lot of filler in that game, sure. But mm-hmm. uh, when you get to like the final like moments of that game, when you like descend under the ocean and the, you know all of Hyrule <laughs> is just frozen down there, it's really kind of like shocking in a in a, in a different way than than Majora's Mask is creepy. But mm-hmm. it it yeah it, it's unnerving. It, there's 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 yeah there's plenty of darkness in that game as well. Mm-hmm. So in terms of modern equivalent, and this has been it's it's been a struggle with me to find like the modern equivalent in terms of our gaming episodes because I'm not as much of a current gamer, but I do, uh, uh, I'll say extra legally, play things uh, via emulators at times. Um, and, you know, I consult with uh, my my expert being my brother on this. Um, and I, I still love uh, good, watching a good playthrough, but uh, we always talk about the modern equivalent of the episode subject. So like something made within the last 10 years, I'd say, which was also when the gaming industry did per- did pivot a lot more to less physical games and more like purchasing games online. Um, that brings about, you know, similar emotions, similar excitement and similar experience. And one thing that is interesting about the things in this game that were now considered, that were once considered inventive and risky and hostile, they're pretty common now or just not unexpected now, I'd say. Yeah, hostility in games is almost like demanded by a certain uh, subset of, of gamer. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. look at the entire, the whole Dark Souls from software thing that's happened over the last 10, 15 years where people are like, like they're into the game because it is so like unforgiving and challenging and really makes you work uh, to to get uh to get good at it i guess which is mm-hmm. to, to a degree that is much more so than majora's mask and look majora's mask it's a hard game i'm mm-hmm. i'm trying to play through it again right now i'm stuck on it right now yeah you know, I, i'm trying to play it without a strategy guy for the first time and it really is quite hard but it, it but truly the, is but people yeah to the degree this has been inflated in its sense of like the game was so hard it was so challenging and unforgiving might have to do with why you know it has developed this kind of weird not quite accurate reputation of being underappreciated and being like i don't know like secretly the best zelda game i mean it is but mm-hmm. i think people might be confusing that with the current trend of like no the harder the more hostile a game is to the player the better it is yeah which is probably also why there's been this kind of responsive revolution of like what we call like the cozy games like the mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Stardew Valley and shit like that. I don't. I I'm saying shit in general way. I don't. It's not a pejorative. You can play your Stardew Valley. I'm letting people enjoy things. Um, but uh, yeah, like the whole cozy gaming thing. I'm like, yeah, like back in my day, we just called those games. But like, it, you know, it's. 
I guess it's because, yeah, it is standard for games to feel really hostile right now. And I'll say if you only like cozy games, that is totally valid. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm going to zero in on one that I have not gotten to play a lot. But uh, for what little I've played, I've also sought out a lot of content on it. It's called um, Kena Bridge of Spirits. It's an indie game released for PS5 about 2021. You're combining um, adventure-driven storytelling with some darker visuals, although some absolutely gorgeous, really beautiful visuals. Like Majora's Masks, it, it mixes adventure with puzzles. Um, super gorgeous. Uh, since it's PS5, you have really, really dense visuals, but like super beautiful and smooth gameplay. Like, I mean... Let's face it, we thought the Zelda games for 64 were super smooth gameplay back then, of course, too. Um, but there are some aspects that are a bit cutesy-poo, but still effective. Like, I would compare it to Pikmin. But there are also a lot of, like, light and dark themes. It'd be great if you are a lover of Zelda. The bad guys, like, there's one that has, like, just this Slenderman kind of feel. So um, I'd even tell people, like, watch a playthrough, and it's really visually satisfying. Kena Bridge of Spirits is great if you like the Zelda games, um, in particular, like, Majora's Mask. It's not quite as, again, hostile as Majora's Mask, but it's a great adventure. And if you like the amount of theme that is put into Majora's Mask, Cana uh, Bridge of Spirits, I'd say give it a try. That's a good recommendation. I've never played that game. I remember hearing about it when it came out, but I'll definitely make a note of that to check that out. Mm -hmm. Now, um, have I you played a lot of more recent releases, Jason? I don't know if you're still in your gaming era. I have. Well, in the same way that you know, my, my, I came to this game kind of through a piece of media about it i have realized in my adulthood that i do still play video games uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm much less adventurous with a video game playing than i, I guess I, I imagined i would be as an adult or like you're a cozy would... gamer no yeah. <laughs> no it's more than just I, I play like three games max a year yeah um but i but i love like watching youtube essays about video games mm -hmm. usually more than i enjoy actually playing video games there's yes 99 of video games that have been made in the past 20 years i would rather just watch a not a let's play i'm not you know, i'm not against those things like we were saying yeah. or like or speed runs those are cool but uh it, it kind of like a, a video essay of like uh, above average or higher quality there are yeah. a lot of uh, there's a lot on youtube a lot of i mean you know there's a lot of bad stuff a lot of yeah. not good quality stuff yes. uh, but if you but if i find like a good like uh, channel that does even again even like just pretty good video game uh, video essays i will go nuts for that now mm -hmm. i do have one actual game, though, that I need to uh, talk about for a second, because mm -hmm. uh, it is to me the most direct uh, uh, successor to Majora's Mask in a very like personal way, mm -hmm. uh, is a game called The Outer Wilds, or just Outer Wilds, I guess. I don't think released, I've heard of that. Yeah, in 2019, uh, developed by Mobius Digital, uh, published okay. by uh, Annapurna Interactive, so like the video game wing of the Annapurna f uh, film studio. I don't actually really know what their deal is, but... Ooh. It is essentially a, uh, it is a space exploration game mm -hmm. uh, set in a, a sort of a tiny little, like very much scaled down solar system. Mm -hmm. And it begins kind of in this sort of, you know, you're a, you're a little gray alien. You live on your little alien world. Uh, the aliens around you are kind of, kind of like Pixar, DreamWorks-esque, like not fully cartoonish, but you know, mm -hmm. kind of like fun little guys that you interact with. <laughs> And 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 essentially, you 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 start the game on the beginning of this you know your your little adventure out into space to go explore the the, the solar system, mm -hmm. and then about twenty two minutes into the game, uh, the entire galaxy is wiped out by a supernova. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, so very and, but, similar to this idea. Yes, of, and it becomes yeah. a time loop game about 
figuring out like, you know, what's going on? What's the deal with these other planets? What is the deal with the civilization that was here before us? You know, what's, Mm -hmm. is there any way to stop this? And, you know, it's about exploring these, again, these interlocking systems that change as the loop plays out and there's different things you can access, you know, different ways to solve puzzles through, you know, going to different spots at different times. Um, Mm -hmm. And it really, again, it starts off in a kind of a very sort of light, almost cute sort of way. But as it goes on, it really... Uh, it really becomes a game, like even more so than Majora's Mask, in a very explicit way about confronting death, like mm-hmm. you know, like the, your your personal death, the uh, the uh, heat death of the universe, stuff like <laughs> that. Uh, and it really, it really, and again, this is a game I played, you know, mid May twenty twenty. So you know, uh, a time loop game uh, that's about death was very much like I was going through the same day over and over again at that point in my life, and I was thinking about dying a lot. Uh, and so, it, but it really, it's one of the few games I've played in my life uh, ever, especially you know, as an adult, that has really stuck with me and kind of affected the way I view the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a, oh, I realized I'm not on camera, so I can't even show you this, but I have, I have a, a big tattoo in my arm of a, an anglerfish that was wow. directly inspired by the, you know, the one real kind of enemy enemy in the game is an anglerfish. And, you know, I don't want to say too much more than that because I do think anyone listening to this should play the game if they are, are able to. Um, mm-hmm. But the, uh, yeah, the anglerfish, and it's, it's it's used throughout the game, really, like, gave me a lot of, like, time and space to think about, you know, uh, death, I guess. And mm-hmm. the, the game also got an expansion pack in 2021 that was, it's like a whole second game on top of the game. And also... I haven't even gotten the full ending of that yet, even though it's been two years now, because mm-hmm. I got like the incomplete version and was kind of so moved by what it said about this whole experience that I I didn't even really feel the need to pick up the game after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it really is, again, very, very similar to Majora's Mask in a lot of pretty direct ways, but really just a Outer Wilds, a fantastic experience that I recommend to anyone who is inclined to play games where you fly around in a little spaceship and uh, use your jetpack to jump around a lot. Well, I mean, you have me a jetpack. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a great so, jetpack. It's a great jetpack mechanic. I love it so much. Awesome. So bringing back a beloved tradition from Peak Show, we have the Majora's Mask lightning round. Um, so Jason, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, number one, a simple yes or no question. Is this your favorite Zelda game? Yes. Uh, I'm also going with a yes, but that brings us to number two. So what is your second favorite? Uh, I, I want to be cool and, and different and say something else, but I, it's Ocarina of Time. It really yeah. is like I've, I've played other Zelda games I've enjoyed since then, uh, but Ocarina mm-hmm. of Time is still, you know, next to this one, uh, my favorite. Yeah, I, I want to be cool and different as well. I think if it comes down to it, it is a link to the past for me, which is like it's pretty expected it's not too not like other girls um i think part of it is just because um a link to the past was like my window into zelda i think also it does like i said flirt with those apocalyptic notions the notions of scarcity and stuff um i love the colors in it um i will also though give a lot to twilight princess uh Mm. twilight princess is a a very very close kind of well i mean then ocarina of time twilight princess will say is rounding out the top four so what is your favorite Link? Deku Link, Goron Link, or Zora Link? Definitely Zora Link. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just largely because he plays a guitar, which is cool. <laughs> um, yes. And again, carrying over from Macarena of Time, uh, the entire like relationship between 
Link and I forget her name, but the little Zora princess in that game mm-hmm. was kind of like quasi like, you know, like like quasi romantic overtones mm-hmm. um that yeah again i was like you know very young when i played that game so the idea of like a game where there was a character who was like like vaguely like romantically interested in you and like the mechanics of the game reflected that in some way mm-hmm. uh i think made a real impression on me and so yeah. like but yeah i guess i think just being part of the zora or exploring the zora culture in, in a deeper way in, in that next game uh just still just carried like some some real I don't know, some real appeal to me. And again, yeah. he's, he's a cool guy who plays guitar. He is very sleek. I will say her name, by the way, was Princess Rudo. I was about uh, to be like, I was about to be like, her name is just Princess Zora. No, I'm glad I <laughs> fact-checked myself because I was about to sound like a real asshole. Um, <laughs> so I will say, I'm going to be like an edgelord and say Goron Link. Ooh. But in in a way, Goron Link is, it should be my least favorite because I find him really difficult to control. <laughs> yes. His powers aren't great. He's very limiting. Um, but... I love the Gorons. I love them as a people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I'm sure you could probably go into some like weird, like they're actually problematic because they're like a portrayal of indigenous people or something, probably. Um, but I think the Gorons are the one thing in this game which it otherwise doesn't have. The Gorons are so cute. Mm-hmm. They're so cute. They're, they've got their simple little lives. Um, I do love rolling around as Goron Link, even though that is like the easiest fucking way for me to die. <laughs> um, yeah, I th- and I love uh, I love how bad his little drums sound. Um, so again, a- another yes or no question, but this is going to say a lot about who you, who young Jason was. Did you ever just run at the three day clock to witness the fiery death as a kid? As a kid? No. Yeah. Too too scary. I was, you know, <laughs> again, it's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, things in this game that resonate with me as a kid, the, the kind mm-hmm. of the, the feeling of loneliness to it, and kind of the anxiety, I guess, about, I was also kind of an anxious kid. And the yeah. idea that, like, you know, if you don't do things right, the world is going to end uh, in the most <laughs> in the scariest way possible was a feeling mm-hmm. that really I felt very deeply. And so to me, seeing that, that the, you know, the fiery death of everyone in, in the world was like, that would have been like too psychically damaging in real life. So no, I avoided that as much as I possibly could. Yeah, it's weird. Like I've talked a big game on this podcast about how I had like no fears of content as a kid, but weirdly, and this isn't the only thing where like kind of game over screens and stuff really bothered me as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking of another very specific one and this is going to sound weird, but it was the Aladdin game for Sega Genesis. And when you got game over, like Jafar's face flashed on the screen and it was like flames behind him. He was like doing this really diabolical laugh. Similar thing with this, like it's the, it was my kid equivalent of like wanting to open the microwave before it beeps. (laughs) You know, I will, I would turn off the system before that happened. And so, and also the fact that I knew because my brother told me it was a fiery death. I did not do that because I was pretty afraid of fire. I still am quite quite afraid of fire. Like I am, if there's a campfire, I'm the person who is farthest from it because I'm just terrified of fire or the things fire can do. And so, yeah, that was, uh, I mean, as a teenager, yes, I did do it. But, and even as a teenager, I'm like, no, this is dark as shit, man. Don't like that. <laughs> there's something so extra horrifying about the fact that when the moon is crashing into the town you see it crush the tower first yeah um, it really is like oh no that's what actually would happen if this weird thing was happening like it would it would like impact the buildings first and there's something about that attention to that little detail that just makes it like oh no no please i don't want this yeah. to happen so on that note because this might be the answer to question number six which is what is a shot or image in this video game that you consider genuinely terrifying or unsettling 
Uh, yeah, everything to do with the moon, uh, looking up at it, being aware aware of it, being reminded of it. Uh, there, you know, as a kid, I would like really try hard not to uh, point the camera up when I was out in the field or anywhere where you could see the moon. <laughs> but really, the thing that really, um, aside from that, well, there's when you go inside the moon at the end of the game, uh, less hmm. terrifying, more unsettling is just the all everything about the imagery of inside the moon that that giant like ethereal field where these weird little kids are playing mm-hmm. uh really just again even just reading about that in the strategy guide was like uh, i don't even know what to say like 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 freaky as hell and then my other thing is the beginning of the the twin mold the, the giant worms boss fight uh mm-hmm. scale another reason why outer wild is such an impressive game to me is that it really communicates scale in a way that is impressive and scary to me big things are yeah, I've, I've, I think I have whatever that, that fear of, of large-scale stuff is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, the idea, like, at the beginning of, obviously, Twin Mold, you then become a, a giant link, and you, you kind of punch them to death, I think. Uh, but but <laughs> when you start off, you're a little guy, and there are these giant, like, sandworm-sized guys just flying around you. It's really, the scale of that, it was, it was very frightening to me. Mm-hmm. I have two, um, and I'm going to try not to do anything to do with the moon. But um, one is uh, they're they're kind of related to each other. One is the first time uh, Link puts on the um, the Deku mask, mm-hmm. and the way it takes over him and his scream, his skyward scream, and you even see like his neck tense up and stuff. That like it really, really conveys like this is not a mask that he's transforming with for funsies. Um, that he it's a prison for him and the fact that even after he gains the ability to take off and put on the masks that it's still this kind of horrible thing it's like sucking the life out of him every time with every single mask and so that i'm just like oh no um but then there's also like so i think you know again N64 animations seemed really amazing to us when we were kids. And when I look back, it's like, okay, this looks silly as fuck. But I'm also like really impressed what they were able to do within their limitations. And the Happy Mask Salesman, his freak out, um, mm-hmm. which by the way, like I, I didn't even touch on it. This game like really does a lot about like the ambi- like there's no black and white good versus evil. And like the Happy Mask Salesman is neither good nor evil, but you have to help him because the greater good is achieved by helping him. And like he full on picks Link up <laughs> off the ground and chokes him out and is having this wild basically tantrum in which he goes from expression to expression. At times it is like something out of a horror movie. So the Happy Mask Salesman is one of the most like threatening little things in, in this series. <laughs> Yeah, the fact that the only guy in the the world that you're in who really knows what's going on with you and like is able to talk to you on your level is this like unknowable, freaky, like very withholding of information guy who will yeah just like pick Link up and do the full like Bart Simpson like why you little like and like yeah. choke him out. Uh, really, yeah, it's it's kind of like well, this is my this is my ally. This is like my only guy who's like on my level. That's not fun. That's, yes. that's frightening. Um, so. On that note, who is your favorite side character, either from a design standpoint or just like an absurdity standpoint? Uh, I, I was. Um, this is this is not really a, a very like obscure answer. This is not really like a mm-hmm. side character, I guess. But I, my answer really is the Skull Kid. Yeah. Um, there was. I was not that. You know, the Skull Kids are, are are again from Ocarina of Time, and I wasn't that. Like, I'm sure I was like annoyed with them at certain points during the playthrough as as a kid. But I was not like really into them. But but the Skull Kid, his thing, like, and the way he floats around with Majora's mask on his face and his mm-hmm. entire, you know, again, 
I'm just bringing a lot of my own little little child feelings into this, but you know he's a little bit of an outcast, but he has this like amazing mm-hmm. power, and he's just like you know he's this uh, uh, you know, impish like like devilish you know figure of like sort of prancing about, causing all this destruction. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess just you know being a, being a lonely little kid who gets to destroy the entire world uh, is you know kind of a not an appealing thing, but there was something about that that resonated with me in the same way Link's isolation was resonant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just, yeah, you know, I just, he's a, just a fun little guy. He's a little scam. <laughs> On that note, uh, an honorable mention goes to other little scamps, which are uh, the Bomber Boys and, <laughs> yes. and Jim. Because, like I said, like the whole, like these kids are just alone and they, <laughs> like, these kids basically have their own government. And yes. uh, like, that's what I love is like the implications because of the implications. Um, <laughs> so, but my actual character is close. It's the Deku Princess. And um, yes, she's camp. She's camp, like her whole thing. She's this like short little draggish creature. Um, And again, it's like the, she's not unambiguously good. She's not evil. She's a little bit of a brat, um, but like you have to help her. And um, like, you're not sure like how old is she supposed to be? Is she a child (laughs) or not? And her design is just so perfect. And I think it's the fact that they kept her diminutive that just is the, the icing on the cake for me. So I love the Deku Princess. And there's something about the fact that she's like a fully realized character who you scoop up into a little bottle to, to yeah. rescue her. <laughs> that is also like adds just another layer to that character. And yeah, that design is is, is so good. Just her little, yes. like her, the way her hair like sh- like shakes and like moves when she's like reacting to stuff and getting like all, all like upset about everything. It's really good. I'm trying to remember because I haven't done a playthrough in a while. We don't have any uh, fairies with just pyramid boobies in this uh, game, do we? Uh, The four great fairies, uh, Uh I believe, do have. Again, in my current playthrough, I've only managed to see one of them because I'm I'm bad at video games. But yeah, they. (laughs) I I remember the 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 impact of their design of the the pyramid uh, (laughs) boobies as 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 it as it was put uh, Mm -hmm. is was less striking to me in this game, maybe because the rest of the game is also kind of freaky and weird. Yes, um, and there is like, the, this always strikes me. This is probably not relevant at all, but I have to have to mention it. Uh, mm-hmm. When you meet the fairies as as Link in in, in general, and these in Majora's Mask, there's mm-hmm. a point when they lift you up on off the ground while they're healing you, where you yeah. see them from Link's point of view. That's yeah. really like something about that is so striking to me. It's like I don't know. Again, it just brings you into into Link's weird isolated headspace of like, what, what's what's this kid seeing? Like, what's his what's his inner life like? Uh, that does kind of bring it back to the side characters and said that there's a lot about this world that is very campy and draggy. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like um, a lot of the, like, cultural writers that talk a lot about drag would actually really love this game. Um, So uh, what is uh, your favorite Ocarina song? And I have a feeling both of us are going to have to end up doing some whistling and or humming on this. (laughs) Uh, It's probably, again, kind of a boring answer, but uh, Epona song? Oh, no. Epona? This is. A, I I always said Epona. I'm I'm just realizing I had like a yeah. I'm just awakening like the ancient uh, argument I had with my friend over this pronunciation back in the day okay. of Ocarina of Time. But no, it, it, the the few the way they bring back some songs from the previous game again just yeah. they, they, it's not many but it's like in the Song of Time and then Epona's well and song. the Song of Time goes from being just somewhat of like a nothing not a nothing song like a semi important song to being the song which I yes. think is really cool. But yeah, I forgot that Epona's song came back in this one. Yeah, and it's really like just it's a it's a lovely tune and hearing it again yeah, and also when you hear it for the first time you're getting to to meet up with your 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 friendly old horse again uh mm-hmm. it's just a, a time of you know it's a 
Yeah, it's, 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 it works emotionally. Also, the Oath to Order, I think, is just a cool song. I love the, the yeah. voices of the uh, the four spirits as they join in on, on the the melody. That's just a really cool, unique song in the in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like the Sonata of Awakening. For some reason, that's the one that I just don't forget ever. It's the one that does the... It's really like... Even though, like, I should hate it because it's a melody that doesn't really resolve and stuff. Um, I think there's something about it that because I think that was a new song to this mm-hmm. one, and it does have the gravitas, whereas some of the other ones do kind of just feel a little a little rando. Which I acknowledge the composers had the challenge of creating stuff that worked on multiple instruments and with multiple sounds here, yeah. which we'll get to. But yeah, I like the sonata of Awakening because it does sound exactly like what it's supposed to be. Which yeah. also, you know, Epona song or, or Epona song, I think is is a similar thing. You play that and you're like, I'm on a ranch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on that note, um, oh, wait, I think I might have, darn it. I either, oh, yes, I skipped question number five. But what is your favorite instrument variation? The Deku horn, the Goron drums, or the Zora guitar? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all so good is the thing. And I know I mentioned mm-hmm. the guitar as being cool because guitars are cool. Um, yeah, but honestly, again, you know, the the Deku is I got I got to show some love for the Deku because it is like mm-hmm. kind of the 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 lesser of the three transformations because it's the one you're forced into for the first section of the game. Yeah, uh, and he's so like he's got that creepy little face. But first of all, the little the little noises he makes when he's running around as 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 Deku Link is his or, little pirouettes. Oh, like, so, yeah. oh yeah, so good. But also the way the horns pop out, they're like as big as his whole little body. You get to uh, see them knock him over at one point. Like yes, uh, the the sound. I think yeah, sound wise, the Zora guitar is my favorite of the variations. Mm-hmm. But the design of the horns is so so charming. I think I'm actually the exact opposite. Like I was so excited with the Zora guitar. I was so excited that Link got a guitar. I also mm-hmm. think it's cool because that is the one that has kind of a story built into how you acquire it. Um, but uh, I think ultimately, I love the sound of the Deku horn. It's really cool. I think. I'm going to say, I think they could have tried harder with the Goron drums. I get what they're going for, but it's just like, there's no discernible melody to anything. And I think that's part of, again, what makes the Gorons kind of simple and stupid. is like, they don't even have melody (laughs) to what they're doing. And I'm just like, you know, there's probably a reading of this that is problematic. Um, All right. So try to answer this question as simply as possible. Do you consider this a difficult game or not? Yes. A hundred percent, even to a, a, a grown adult man now trying to play mm-hmm. it again. It is, again, I am I am stuck. I do not know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine when you said you're trying to play it without uh, player's guides. I'm like, that is where I, I can't remember the last time I attempted to play any adventure game like this without a guide. So uh, my hat's off to you. Yes, I consider <laughs> this a very difficult game um, and I don't consider it a relaxing game. Like that said... I also consider Ocarina of Time a difficult game. It has mm-hmm. things, I think Ocarina of Time has sequences that are harder than this. Like I think of even something like not being caught in the castle when you're going through the little hedge maze and stuff. Mm-hmm. That is really, really hard. Um, this is a game with almost no respite. You go from one really tough thing to another. Like, yeah, yeah. it's a difficult, it's an objectively difficult game. And even the things that would be like easy and like a fun and a little break from stuff uh, in other games, like some of the like the more minor side quests you can do in Majora's Mask, because mm-hmm. of the way the game is designed, they don't actually offer you any of that relief or like, you know, just a little moment of like pleasant 
distraction from the main quest because mm-hmm. uh you know you're this is a game where you're solving people's problems a lot of the time you know some of them are like storybook problems where you like go and fight a monster some of them are like miscommunications among family members and you can solve those problems and but no matter how nice it is you're gonna hit that reset button at some point and all of that's gonna be gonna come back there is nothing that is resolved that stays resolved it all yeah. like gets undone every few and that's just like that like really messes with you a little bit and i think it's part of again why the game has this this feeling of being so 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 hostile and so like you know challenging when it's it's not really that much different but just the again the mechanics of it kind of remove any sense of like respite or or rest Mm -hmm. or like nice feeling from the experience for sure um and uh kind of like we were saying like that's why even like the side quests are such a such a different feel than in any other Zelda game prior to that. So now I know both of us have very strong feelings about Ocarina of Time, but specifically what other Zelda game would you recommend to someone if they say this one is their favorite and they've never, or they've never played another Zelda game, they really like this one. What other Zelda game would you recommend to them? Uh, Well, assuming I've already recommended Outer Wilds, uh, Mm -hmm. I think I would have to recommend Link to the Past. Um, Mm -hmm. Or or again, I guess the boring answer is Ocarina of Time because they're so similar, Mm -hmm. but no one's, no one who says this is their favorite is going to... Um, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking this one out loud right now. Of yeah, course, yeah. I, I, I would say <laughs> Link to the Past. You know, it, it, It's not really the same, but it, you mm-hmm. know, you're not going to get the same thing from any of the other Zelda games, at least none of the ones I've played. You know, They're all pretty... Mm-hmm. You know, n- None of them have really followed up on the, on the formula of this game. Yeah. I would have to say probably, um, like you said, there's a case for Ocarina of Time because you've got the similarities. Mm-hmm. There's a case for Link to the Past. I think I would say Wind Waker. Mm-hmm. Um because uh, you have that, it's Wind Waker is more deceptively dark, and it's not quite as thematic. But they really do like, and I think I give a lot of credit to the visuals in Wind Waker. Um, you know, it's I know they're not everyone's cup of tea, but the scenes that are created, I think, like it can have that feeling of dread. So and mm-hmm. and it's unexpected dread. Yeah. So I would say uh, if you like this one, give Wind Waker a try. I don't care if it shows up on a few people's worst of list. It is objectively not the worst you don't have to think it's the best it is definitely not among the worst no absolutely not so to conclude our thoughts on majora's mask we need to determine um the kind of main thing of like how this holds up and this is great because you're currently replaying this now but let's say you're playing this you know in your 30s what are aspects of the game that you think have and haven't aged well whether it's like the social context or in terms of style how edgy it is or isn't anymore I think the main thing is that just we've now seen a further extension of the possibilities of video games and this kind mm-hmm. of unique, like time-driven storytelling. There's a lot of games that you know, not quite as explicitly as a game like Outer Wilds or even other time loop games like Death Loop or, God forbid, Twelve Minutes, a game that no <laughs> one should play. Don't play it. Uh, if you, if you, if you're curious about it, please look up a plot summary and then just stay far away from it. <laughs> um, but but you know so it's like the the complexities of the way this game is designed you know aren't as impressive now just through the passage of time and you know a lot of that stuff has i think arguably grown out of what we saw in this game but again there's just always going to be that feeling of like well this was really kind of mind-blowing to a 10 year old but now i you know this i'm, I'm 30 34 now i guess uh, and i've seen you know two plus decades more of, of evolution in video games so it doesn't quite doesn't quite uh, hit the same way in that regard, but I don't, uh, nothing, you know, again, aside from, there is, yeah, there's certainly, I'm sure, arguments to be made that depictions of some characters have 
problematic aspects to them. I, you know, I'm not really oh, the, surely. the yeah. authority to speak on that, but none of that really jumps out at me. Maybe mm-hmm. someone playing it for the first time, it would. Um, yeah, to, to me, it's like most of the game's content, you know, the, the story, the, 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 the whole overall vibe and the mechanics, those all still feel pretty, you know, pretty, pretty solid to me. And maybe it's just because there are still Zelda games being produced, which is as different as the series have, has gotten from this game uh, in the, you know, the past few years, especially, uh, you mm-hmm. know, those, those Zelda components are still part of that game. So there still is something that people keep coming back to about the, the, the fundamentals of the Zelda formula, which this game does still follow. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. And I, I think also the reason why it ages well is because it's no longer considered innovative. I think everything about it, you know, timelines, time travel, um, you know, uh, decisions affecting your broader gameplay, that's not innovative anymore. But it's still like there are some not even video games. There are some pieces of media that when you take away it being innovative is no longer effective. A good mm-hmm. example, and not for the obvious reason I like to point to is the movie American Beauty. Um, you know, ignore ignore who stars in it for a second. Yeah. Um, American Beauty is no longer effective because we have now played out criticisms of suburbia. We've now played out criticisms of the American dream. Um, it's not edgy anymore. Um, when something ceases to be innovative, it can still be good if the storytelling is effective. And I think this is so effective in its storytelling and its thematics that that is really good. So even though it's no longer innovative, I kind of don't care. I think the one thing that a lot of video game players would, I don't want to say demand, but maybe be a bit critical of is despite the time constraints, the playtime is really, really, really long. Like it's, um, and I think people like, there are now really good examples of games that are super good and maybe kind of dense and stuff, but have a much shorter play time than this. And because this game is so hard, I don't want to say you want it to be over faster, but again, there's a reason a lot of people did give up on this game because it's really hard and it just keeps going and going. Uh, So I think maybe if it were first released now, people would just be like to, you know, to quote Krusty, oh man, that just kept going. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. it does take a while to get through like even one one cycle, you know, again, going back to Outer Wilds, that that cycle is like exactly, I'm going to say exactly, it's 22 or 23 minutes, it's somewhere around there, but it's a very like, it's a very manageable chunk of time. You do one full loop in the outer wilds and that's like a good like single like okay i'm gonna sit down and play for just a little bit just you know one go through but majora's mask to get through one cycle can take like a a surprisingly long amount of time like Mm -hmm. like hours will pass and i'm just like oh man i thought it was and again because i'm stuck i'm not getting anywhere Mm -hmm. so it's so it's so challenging too you get through that first three-day period when you're stuck as the Deku, and that's like considered almost like the cold open of yes, the game. Yes. And I just like that. I remember as a kid thinking, "Oh my God, what am I in for?" You know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, all right, Jason. Well, thank you for being with us uh, on this special Halloween episode of Tales from the Rec Room. If you want to once again plug your newsletter, maybe what some of your recent topics were, and where once again where we can uh, subscribe to your newsletter of intriguing ideas, hit us with it. Absolutely. That newsletter once again is the secret history of modernlife.substack.com uh, when this comes out i will have just done a run of halloween style recommendations for horror themed media uh mm-hmm. you know which which won't be quite as seasonally appropriate as it is right this moment but still you know ho- horror fiction in all its forms is, is a year-round thing so it absolutely dig is dig into that and i've also uh you know i i tried to write one article about the career of miley cyrus that has spun out into two articles uh probably going to be three uh pretty soon that's again i don't know if anyone 
cares about it in the same way I do, but I just can't stop thinking about that sort of stuff. And again, the you know the Justin Timberlake situation also ongoing as of right now is in sync back. Are they really back? What's going on? What's going to happen with Trolls Three? I don't know, but I'm going to be here and I'm going to find out. I have to presume you've seen the Barbie movie. So do you agree with the allegation that Justin Timberlake is also an Allen? <laughs> oh, um, that's can you can you elaborate on that for me? Because I, I like that 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 theory. Because um, uh, there's the line that Alan, uh, Alan is the best part of that movie. Uh, this isn't my podcast to talk about the Barbie movie, but um, <laughs> Michael Sarah as Alan is absolutely brilliant. But he goes, there are lots of Alans in the real world. All of in sync. Alans. Yes, that one too. And it's... <laughs> I I have never heard a more accurate thing than all of NSYNC are Allens. However, I would disagree that Justin Timberlake is an Allen. Yeah, I think Justin Timberlake is the one non-Allen of NSYNC. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, like I can't name a single other NSYNCer. I would I would argue, however, that the Backstreet Boys have extremely Allen vibes, um, mainly because the Backstreet Boys can't dance. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, as for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde. I'm not an Allen. Uh, you can find me on Blue Sky at Prune Tracy. Uh, follow this podcast at Rec Room Tales on Blue Sky. You can also follow it on Twitter slash X. What the fuck is going on there? Uh, now, this is a special episode, so we will not be back weekly for weekly episodes, but you must might expect an episode to come out around American Thanksgiving. Full disclosure, that will depend on the status of the still ongoing SAG strike. Uh, but if that strike is concluded, you can expect a um, an episode on the original three season run of Family Guy going where I never thought I would go before. Uh, and we are definitely going to be back with episodes on the Christmas break for a special event that I am calling Home for the Holodunst, a, spe- a celebration of all things Kirsten Dunst. So I've been your host, Bree Rohde. Take it easy.